I am Pinxian Qian, the Editor-in-Chief of Heart Rhythm. The October 2017 issue of Heart Rhythm has a featured article entitled Expert Consensus Statement on Caster and Surgical Ablation of Atrial Fibrillation. The article is authored by Hugh, Dr. Hugh Calkins and 60 co-authors throughout the world. The article is a complete rewrite of the 2012 consensus statement with updated contents. A video interview conducted by Dr. Dan Murray with Dr. Hugh Calkins is featured on www.heartrhythmjournal.com website. The October issue is also a focused issue of sudden cardiac death. The first article is entitled Long-Term Prognosis of Drug-Induced Bugatta Syndrome. The paper was written by Dr. C. Ira from Heart Rhythm Management Center, Brussels, Belgium. The authors studied a consecutive cohort of 343 patients with drug-induced Bugatta Syndrome. These patients included 78 with spontaneous type 1 pattern. The mean age was around 40 years. Among them, 71% were asymptomatic. The authors found the drug-induced Bugatta syndrome has a good prognosis if asymptomatic. However, sudden cardiac death is still possible. Clinical presentation as sudden cardiac death and inducible ventricular arrhythmias during EP study are independent risk factors for arrhythmic events. In asymptomatic patients, proband status and inducible ventricular arrhythmias can help to identify patients at high risk. This paper is an important contribution to the literature. The major findings are in line with previously published results showing that spontaneous type 1 Bugatta syndrome is associated with increased risk as compared to drug-induced Bugatta syndrome. However, it remains a question whether this is a consequence of specific pathophysiological differences between spontaneous and drug-induced Bugatta syndrome or whether this is due to a false positive drug challenge test. The next study is entitled Role of exercise electrocardiogram on screening for T-wave oversensing after implantation of subcutaneous ICD. The study was co-authored by Dr. Afzal and his associates from the Ohio State University Medical Center. The purpose is to determine whether routine treadmill exercise post-subcutaneous ICD implantation is warranted. The authors studied 87 patients, mostly receiving subcutaneous ICD for primary prevention. They found that during exercise, the heart rate increases, but the difference between R-wave amplitude at rest and during exercise was insignificant. The instance of T-wave oversensing during exercise was zero. Because of these negative findings, the authors concluded that routine treadmill exercise does not result in additional discrimination of patients susceptible to T-wave oversensing. 
The next paper is entitled Sodium Channel Blocker Challenge in the Familial Screening of Bugatti Syndrome, Safety and Predictors of Positivity. The paper was written by Dr. Terassi and his associates from University of Nantes, France. The objective of the study is to identify predictors of positivity and the complications of the sodium channel blocker challenge in the setting of familial screening of Bugatti syndrome. The authors selected 672 patients from 137 families for the study. All families had at least two subjects affected by the syndrome. The authors found that the sodium channel blocker challenge in the screening of familial Brugada syndrome is safe. The risk of complication is considerably increased in the case of familial history of complicated sodium channel blocker challenge in young patients and in the presence of decreased ECG conduction parameters. However, QRS enlargement during the test is not directly related to complications. This study may not apply to patients in the United States, as adjumenting, which was used in 80% of the cases in this study, is not routinely available. The next article is entitled Novel Measure of Autonomic Remodeling Associated with Sudden Cardiac Arrest in Diabetes. The paper was written by Dr. Yang Yan from the Heart Institute of Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. The authors sought to evaluate autonomic remodeling of sinus nerve response in sudden cardiac arrest and diabetes while accounting for heart rate. They studied a case control study in sudden cardiac arrest cases from Oregon Sudden Unexpected Death Study. They used 12-lead ECG and tested 10 seconds of rhythm strips to determine the heart rate and heart rate variability. They found that diabetic patients with sudden cardiac arrest had a loss of expected heart rate variability and heart rate relationship. In other words, decreased heart rate was not associated with increased heart rate variability in this population. The absence of an interaction between the heart rate variability and the heart rate may be a non-invasive risk measurement for patients with diabetes. The limitation of the study is that these data were not collected based on a prospective cohort. The actual clinical value of these findings will need to be determined by future studies. The next article is entitled Subcutaneous ICD Post-Approval Study, Clinical Characteristics and the Perioptive Results. The authors are Dr. Michael Gold and his associates at the University of South Carolina. The purpose of this study was to characterize patient selection and the acute performance of the subcutaneous ICD in a contemporary real-world setting. There were more than 1,600 patients from 86 centers in this registry. The authors found that the contemporary U.S. patients with subcutaneous ICD 
have more comorbidities than in previous cohorts of subcutaneous ICD. These patients were younger, and there are more end-stage renal diseases. Implantation success is high in the short-term complication rates are acceptable. These findings suggest that subcutaneous ICD performed very well in the real world. However, according to Dr. Rick Page's editorial, there are also some limitations. For example, we do not know what percentage of all patients eligible for transvenous ICD received the subcutaneous ICD. The article also failed to report the number of patients who underwent ECG screening but failed the test. Those are important information not available in this registry. The next article is a contemporary review entitled Tracking Interlead Heterogeneity of R and T Wave Morphology to Disclose Latent Risk for Certain Cardiac Deaths. The paper is written by Dr. Barrier and his co-authors of Best Israel Medical Center in Boston. Sudden cardiac death risk stratification is a huge clinical problem. Previous attempts of using ECG parameters such as QT dispersion and the T-peak to T-end interval have shown initial promise, but ultimately yielded mixed results. In this review, the authors propose to use interlead heterogeneity of R and T wave morphology as a new risk stratifier. The authors conclude that interlead heterogeneity of R and T wave morphology is a promising risk stratifying method to predict sudden cardiac death. I think the authors' points are very well taken. The commonly used risk stratifying methods, such as QT intervals, T-wave heterogeneity, T-peak to T-N intervals, and so forth, focus on repolarization abnormalities. However, there is a growing evidence showing that depolarization abnormalities, such as QRS fragmentation, is also important in predicting the arrhythmic outcomes. A combined analysis of R and T-wave make more sense than analyzing either one alone. However, these new methods will need to be tested in prospective risk stratification clinical trials. The next article is entitled Atrial Antitachycardia Pacing and Atrial Remodeling, a sub-study of the International Randomized Minerva Trial. The abbreviation M-I-N-E-R-V-A stands for Minimize Right Ventricular Pacing to prevent atrial fibrillation and heart failure. The trial enrolled 1,300 patients with bradycardia and previous atrial tachyarrhythmias. A main conclusion was atrial preventive pacing and atrial antitachycardia pacing is superior to standard dual chamber pacing and managed ventricular pacing. The purpose of the present sub-study was to evaluate atrial antitachycardia pacing impact on AT and AF induced atrial remodeling. Re the remodeling is measured by early recurrence of AT and AF 
or ERAF, and by change in left atrial diameter. The results showed that the ERAF instance was significantly lower in atrial anti-tachycardia pacing plus managed ventricular pacing arm than the other arms. In about 70% of the patients, there was also a reduction of left atrial diameter. This data suggests that the atrial electrical remodeling becomes important after about 12 hours of continuous arrhythmia. Atrial anti-tachycardia pacing may reverse or prevent both electrical and the mechanical remodeling. Uh, these findings obviously are specific to this particular population enrolled into the trial and uh, may not be applicable to other patients. The next paper is entitled Association of Pre-Procedural Cardiac MRI and Outcomes of VT Ablation in Patients with Idiopathic Dilated Cardiomyopathy. The paper was co-authored by Dr. Siontis and his collaborators from Ann Arbor, Michigan. The purpose of this study was to assess whether pre-procedural late gadolinium enhancement MRI or LGE MRI can improve ablation outcomes in dilated cardiomyopathy. Before 2012, the LGE MRI was not performed. After 2012, the patients routinely received LGE MRI. Therefore, the uh, authors were able to compare the outcomes before and after 2012 and draw a conclusion. The results showed that the pre-procedural LGE MRI, as done after 2012, was independently associated with improved procedural success by logistic regression analysis. In addition, the pre-ablation imaging was also associated with improved survival-free of the composite endpoint of VT occurrence, heart transplantation, or death. The authors concluded that the pre-procedural imaging, uh, which was LGE MRI, may be associated with improved outcomes of VT ablation in dilated cardiomyopathy. The limitation of the study included the retrospective nature of the comparison and lack of randomization. In addition, idiopathic dilated cardiomyopathy may represent a heterogeneous disease entity with variable scar patterns, and uh, those uh, scar patterns were not included in this analysis. In addition, as pointed out by Dr. Yilad Enter of Beth Israel Hospital in Boston, cardiac MRI is associated with increased healthcare cost and potential risk in patients with implanted devices. Therefore, a prospective randomized control study will be necessary to determine the real benefit of LGE MRI in VT ablation and the cost effectiveness of this approach. The next manuscript is entitled Comparison of Longevity and the Clinical Outcomes of ICD Leads Among Manufacturers. The paper was co-authored by Dr. Kawada and his associates of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine 
at Okayama University, Okayama, Japan. The authors compared the longevity of Biotronic Linux SSD, Medtronic Spring Fidelis, Spring Quadro, and Boston Scientific Indotech Reliance leads. They found that the failure rates of Linux and the Spring Fidelis leads were around 3% per year, while the Indotech leads were around 0.6% per year. Based on these data, the authors concluded that in their single-center experience, the survival rate of Linux leads was unacceptably low. And this is uh, data from Asia that confirms some of the earlier observations on this lead. The paper was accompanied by editorial by Dr. Charles Love of Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. The editorial noted that the reported failure rate of 3.2% per year would almost certainly be unacceptable. However, Dr. Love also stated that his personal experience with Linux lead seems to indicate a much lower failure rate. This data clearly suggests that there is a need for national and or international registry for the devices that tracks all implantable cardiac implantable devices and uh, follow their failure rate. Only then will we know exactly how often and at what rate will each device fail. The next article is entitled Low Lateral Thoracic, Thoracic Site for Cardiac Implantable Electronic Device Implantation a viable alternative in patients with limited access options after infected device extraction. The paper was written by Dr. Liang and his co-authors from the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The purpose of the study was to describe a straightforward low lateral thoracic implantation technique for patients with a patent auxiliary vein but unavailable bilateral pectoral site. They reported nine pacemaker-dependent patients who underwent lead and device extraction. This was followed by a low lateral thoracic implantation in whom bilateral pectoral sites were unavailable. The authors report that all implantations were successful. No patient experienced recurrent device infection. Therefore, the conclusion was that the pacemaker-dependent patients with limited prepectoral and vascular access options, a low lateral thoracic implantation site is a viable alternative. The weakness of the study is that it did not include a uh, direct comparison with uh, other alternative approaches, such as the epicardial approach through surgical incision. The next article is entitled The Validation of the Defibrillation Lead Ventricular Volume Measurement Compared to 3D Echocardiography. This paper was written by Dr. Haynes of Royal Oak, Michigan, and his collaborators. As a background, the authors mentioned that the ability to measure cardiac volume using pre-existing defibrillation leads may be very useful to monitor cardiac hemodynamics. Therefore, the purpose of this study was to evaluate the accuracy 
of a new ventricular volume sensor called VBS compared with 3D echocardiography in patients with ICD. The authors studied 22 patients undergoing generator replacement and concluded that the VBS provides an accurate method for ventricular volume assessment using chronically implanted defibrillator lead and is statistically equivalent to echo determination of the mean, diastolic, and systolic volume. However, whether or not this new method is clinically useful in managing patients with heart failure remains unclear. The next paper is entitled Effect of PR Interval Prolongation on Long-Term Outcomes in Patients with LBBB versus non-LBBB morphologists undergoing cardiac resynchronization therapy. The paper was written by Dr. Rickard of Cleveland Clinic and its co-authors. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the impact, the impact of PR prolongation before CRT on long-term outcomes, specifically taking into the account of bundle branch block morphologies and QRS duration. During follow-up of uh, more than five years, the authors discovered that PR interval prolongation is an independent predictor of impaired long-term outcome after CRT among patients with LBBB, but not in non-LBBB patients. Notably, among LBBB patients, PR interval prolongation is more important predictor than QR's duration in assessing long-term outcome. There was an editorial by Drs. Van Hemel and the Kelder of Netherlands. The editorial pointed out that this new, da uh, new data adds information to the search of the most valid criteria for the selection uh, for CRT candidates. However, there are also significant limitations to the study. For example, most patients in the present study had a defibrillator. Therefore, this data may not be applicable to patients with CRT pacemaker without a defibrillator. The next paper is entitled Deep Sequencing of Atrial Fibrillation Patients with Mitral Valve Regurgitation shows no evidence of mosaicism, but reveals normal rare germline variants. The paper was written by Gregors and his co-authors from Copenhagen, Denmark. The purpose of this study was to investigate the prevalence of somatic variants in AF candidate genes in AF patient population undergoing surgery for mitral valve regurgitation. The results will be used to determine whether these patients are genetically predisposed to AF. The authors extracted DNA from 44 AF patients with mitral valve regurgitation. Using next-gen sequencing, they investigated 110 genes to determine if there, uh, there are any variants. The authors found no somatic variants in these cardiac tissues. However, 33 patients had a rare germline variation in at least one candidate genes. Among them, 14 variants were novel, 
the authors concluded that they did not find any somatic variant in patients with atrial fibrillation in the mitral valve regurgitation population. Surprisingly, they found that their cohort of AF patients may be predisposed to AF by germline variations. As pointed out in an editorial by Dr. Dabar of Chicago in Illinois, the sample size may not be large enough to completely rule out the possibility of somatic mutation in the pathogenic genesis of AF, at least in some patients. And a second limitation is that there was no control population in which the patient received the mitral valve replacement, but without the pre-surgical atrial fibrillation. The next paper is entitled Entrainment and High-Density 3D Mapping in Right Atrial Macro Reentry Provide Critical Complementary Information. The paper was written by Patrick et al. from Royal Melbourne Hospital, Melbourne, Australia, and its collaborators. The authors performed this study to determine the strengths and limitations of high-density 3D mapping and the entrainment mapping of right atrial reentry. Based on the 3D mapping, the authors visually, visually identified 27 atrial macro reentrant circuits in 15 patients. However, with entrainment techniques, only 17 of the 27 circuits were active. That is shown to be in the circuit. Therefore, many visually identified macro reentry may be due to passive circuit propagation rather than a critical reentrant circuit. According to Mines criteria, what appears to be circular movement cannot be conclusively defined as reentry until cutting the critical circuit terminates the reentrant excitation. The editorial by Dr. Santagetti and Dixit concluded that it is safe to say that despite the availability of high-density uh, and high-resolution electrical anatomical mapping system, entrainment remains the gold standard to determine reentry. The next paper is entitled Characterization of the Previously Unrecognized Clinical Phenomena, Delayed Shock After Cardiac Implantable Electronic Devices extraction. The paper is written by Eunice and his collaborators from Sacker School of Medicine, Tel Aviv. The de delayed shock was defined as uh, that occurs uh, four hours after the procedure and had at least 30 minutes of persistent hypotension. They found that 17 of the 270 17 consecutive patients, or 9%, developed the delayed shock during the first 24 hours after the procedure. Among them, 47% sepsis, but the remaining 53% had no specific cause. The authors conclude that they have described a previously unrecognized clinical phenomenon of delayed shock developing after extraction. This, these patients has a higher long-term mortality than the patient who did not develop delayed shock. The paper was accompanied by editorial from Dr. Brinker of Johns Hopkins. 
He suspected that delay shock most likely relates to liberation of the bacteria into the blood at the time of the removal. However, he also noted that it is quite intriguing to know that 53% of the patients do not appear to have sepsis. The mechanism of delay shock of uh, these 53% of the patients remain unclear. The next manuscript is a contemporary review entitled Clinical and Electrocardiography Features of Complete Heart Block After Blunt Cardiac Injury. The manuscript is written by Dr. Ali of Bergamo, Italy, and his associates. The authors performed a systemic review and analysis of articles published in PubMed on complete heart block after blunt cardiac injury. They found a total of 50 patients, mainly secondary to traffic or sport accidents. There was 20% mortality, mainly occurring in the early post-traumatic period. Most of the deaths were due to or triggered by this uh, severe arrhythmia. Recurrent or permanent complete heart block requiring pacemaker implantation occurred in about 50% of the survivors. A structural damage of AV conduction system can be found in about 50% of the necropsy patients. The next paper is the unknown of the month by Dr. Reginald Ho of Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. He showed an ECG of a narrow complex tachycardia with AV dissociation and asked the question, what is the mechanism? The next paper is the viewpoint article entitled Bridge to Surgery, Best Practice Protocol Derived from Early Clinical Experience with the Bridge Occlusion Balloon. The lead author of this paper is Dr. Bruce Welkoff, the Cleveland Clinic, along with several other co-authors. The article described what is the bridge occlusion balloon and what is the best practice protocol to utilize this balloon to support lead extraction. This article should be very helpful to physicians who perform lead extraction procedures. In addition to the above articles, the journal also published a Josephson and Wellens ECG lesson featuring a rate related bundle branch block following anteroceptal myocardial infarction. That article was followed by an image showing esophageal ulcer after PV isolation. The author shows an interesting phenomenon that right-sided esophagus could be moved to the left by deep inspiration. This issue of the journal also had four EP news, including one on case report journal one on basic and one on clinical EP, and a 4CP news is written for allied professionals. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. I'm Dr. Pinxian Chen for Harvard.